Welcome again to Grace Bible Church. I didn't announce it. I wanted to tell you that on August 19th, we'll have a guest in. Um, Mark Ragg will be coming from Saving Grace Bible Church to, he'll be preaching on Sunday and, and so we, we want to uh, welcome him. Uh, we'll let you know um, more as that time approaches. I think we're about three weeks away from that. So uh, he will be coming in and, and preaching. So I would just ask that you guys be praying for that time, uh, that he'd come. Uh, we partnered with Saving Grace, and, and he's going to come in. And, and uh, I am certain that he's going to be an encouragement to us uh, as he shares with us. And... and as we are able to ask him questions and have fellowship with him. So be praying for that time as, we, as, as it approaches on the 19th. Well, this morning we're going to be back in the book of James. I wanted to thank Jonathan. He's not here this morning. I wanted to thank Jonathan for uh, taking the last uh, three weeks. I have been able to uh, spend some time with my family. We were out in South Carolina last week, and, and we were able to uh, spend some time together and it's been a re- really refreshing time for me to, to think through um, where we are, where, where we need to go, and and how, how we're going to get there. So it's also been a refreshing time for me to refresh uh, and, and really work on uh, my studies in terms of where we are in James and, and where we're going. So just be praying as we move forward. We're in James chapter 4 right now. Uh, I hope that we'll be finished uh, with James in, er- in the early fall, and I'm praying about where we might go. I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking about that and praying about that. So, be, be, join me in prayer as I as I think through and pray through where we, where we're at. I've been studying a couple of different books, and uh, I think I'm, I'm, I think I've made a decision, but I just don't want to give that, uh, give that out just yet, just in case I uh, happen to change my mind. Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to be in James chapter 4, and we started this section uh, uh, three or four weeks ago, I guess. Uh, We started this section at that point, and I I really, on that Sunday, the last time I preached, I preached uh, a review of James chapters 1 through 3, and I was hoping that it would be a setup for uh, James chapter 4 through 1 through 10. I think that what we'll find is, if you remember that sermon, uh, it was about uh, the, the tragedy of unbelief and the fact that of unbelief even in the church. Today, the, the sermon I've titled, the sermon, Clear and Present Danger. Clear and Present Danger. James, in this section, James 4, 1 through 10, actually 1 through 3 is what we're going to be in this morning, presents four nasty sources of conflict which make the church or can make the church look like the world. Uh, We're going to see deadly lust. We're going to see bitter jealousy. We're going to see boastful pride. And we're going to see distorted desires. Those are the four uh, sources of conflict that make the church or can make the church look like the world. So let me pray and then I'll read James chapter 4, 1 through 10 for context. Heavenly Father, I pray for our time this morning. I pray that you would bless this time, bless the preaching of the word. Father, I thank you for these dear saints that are here this morning. I praise you that you brought them here. I pray for those who couldn't be here. Lord, I pray that you would be with them and comfort them. Again, Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would be with me that you would, your word would rise above my own voice, that you would just use me as a vessel. 
to to proclaim your truth in this in this a time that is so difficult for all of us in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read James four one through ten. James writes in verse one, "What it what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel." You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. He gives a greater grace, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, my lo- wife and I love to watch good movies and good TV shows. We have watched several complete series. We love period dramas such as Downton Abbey and, and others. Really, we love a good story. We love to watch a good story. And I've often found myself asking, what makes a great story? What makes... Uh, for great writing, what are the elements? Uh, maybe many of you probably know much more, a great deal more than I do about what makes good storytelling. But I believe there must be one element present. That is the element of conflict. Conflict. There must be great conflict to, to draw us in. Whether it be conflicting characters or conflicting groups or conflicting goals or ideas. Now, whether it be any of those things, there must be conflict to make a good story. As we return to the book of James, we find ourselves standing at the peak of this letter. This passage before us is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. As I have studied these these verses, I have found myself at the, at the peak looking down both sides from the beginning to the end of this letter. I found myself doing this to understand how we've arrived at this point. And let me tell you, there's great conflict. There are groups of people at odds with one another. There are conflicting goals and ideas. There is great suffering And there are even hints of murder. I've been on the edge of my seat as I've studied this passage. As I've tried to place myself in uh, the place of these people that, that James is writing to. And I have been astounded. I've been gripped by the danger faced by them. I've been astounded by the clear and present danger facing James's readers. But unfortunately, this is not a story. It's not a novel, right? It's not fiction. 
It's very real and it's very shocking what's happening. As I said, James presents to us four nasty sources of, of conflict which, make the, which can make or make the church look like the world. The first source of conflict is deadly lust. James writes, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? James seems to change the subject here. Uh, he's asking a question about the, the quarrels and conflicts around the church. Yet, what, what I find as I've studied through this is he's not changing the subject at all. Really, for us to understand this section, we really need to see the connection to the previous section that we that we studied in chapter three, and and with the first uh, three or first three chapters of this letter. James had said earlier in in three sixteen, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Clearly, James is showing them that that worldly wisdom that he spoke about, the worldly wisdom that he spoke about in chapter 3 leads to jealousy and selfish ambition, and and which in turn leads to disorder and great evil. In 3.17, he says that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and gentle, and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without what? Without hypocrisy. In other words, James wants his readers to understand that following the wisdom from above will always yield good fruit in our lives and in the life of the church. While wisdom from below will always yield disorder and great evil. If we turn this around, then we know that evil and disorder, where evil and disorder exist, there is of necessity worldly people. Does that make sense? Where evil and, and disorder exist, then there is of necessity worldly people. In other words, there are immature believers who are worldly, and there are even unbelievers who exist amid the church. Jesus himself warned that unbelievers would exist in the church, right? He said that there would be unbelievers in the midst of God's people. He said that in Matthew 13, 24-30, that there would be the tares that are sown among the wheat. So this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. In 3.18, in James 3.18, James goes on to remind them of the connection between godly wisdom and the peace that comes to our lives and to our churches when we walk in righteousness. So when we walk in righteousness, the fruit of that walking in righteousness is a peace that comes uh, throughout the church, comes to our families and comes to our church. That doesn't mean that we won't experience conflict, but it means that as we walk in righteousness, that we will see a peace that comes upon us. The fighting goes away. We sometimes forget Right? Some of us are more connected to this than others, but we sometimes forget, as Christians, we forget all that God has done in our lives. And we forget the conflict that's there every day. Right now, as, as we're sitting here today, there is great conflict in many homes in the city because they don't know the Lord and they're not walking in righteousness. We tend to forget that. We tend to forget it as we, as we grow in Christ. Well, this is, this is the backdrop, then, of James's rhetorical question in, in chapter 4, verse 1. He, he, he does make a transition from 3 to 4, 
But he seems from he seems to move from the general teaching uh, regarding these things to a more specific exhortation regarding specific situations situations that are facing or occurring among the people. Douglas Moose says this. James's commendation of peacemakers in verse 18 flows naturally into a discussion of the community problems that created so strong a need for those peacemakers. To get that that, that the, the issue is, is that he speaks generally of the need of, of peace in the church, the need of the peacemaker in the church, because there is uh, this great conflict that's existing in the church. Very specific things that are happening. Clearly then, James had in mind very specific difficulties that this church, or these churches, if you will, I mean these people are scattered, are, are encountering. These, these difficulties are trials uh, connect us back to James chapter 1, where James addressed how they were to respond to difficult trials. That's chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Here in James 4, he begins to address the specific trials that are being experienced by the people. And I want you to know then, too, that there is a connection between the wisdom that he spoke of, the wisdom from above that he spoke of in chapter 3, and the wisdom that he encouraged his people to seek in chapter 1. This wisdom that he wants them to seek as they work through the trials and difficulties. As they, as they face these very specific issues that he's going to be addressing, he wants them to understand that they need to be going to the Lord, they need to be praying to the Lord, and they need to be seeking after his wisdom, the wisdom from above. He knew that, the, that God's wisdom was required to navigate these troubled waters. Back in 4.1, James begins to exhort his people then, especially those who were on the fence. These are the people who could either fall away or truly commit their entire lives to Christ. He spoke of them in James 5.19-21. He spoke of those who, who if, if he says, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way and will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So he's speaking then to people who are on the fence that, that could fall either way. But he's also rebuking those whose faith is not real. And I hope to prove that James's main purpose here then is to rebuke those who do not truly know Christ. I'll call them the fakers. It appears that these people, the fakers, that is one referring to, were in and around the church and had carefully avoided persecution. They probably did this by showing favoritism for the for rich unbelievers who were persecuting the church. We know this from chapter two, verses one through seven, where he says, "My brethren, do not show partiality." So more than likely, these, these Christians that are on the fence are, are avoiding persecution uh, by these rich unbelievers by showing partiality to them, thinking that they were gonna, they're going to get ahead because of it. They also had carefully avoided showing the appearance of caring for the brethren. Now, let that soak in. Probably for fear of losing their own standing. They had even, I get that from chapter 2, verse chapter 2 verse 16 they'd even turned away christians in dire need of help and in doing so they had violated god's royal law according to the scripture they they that you shall love your neighbors yourself that's chapter 2 verse 8 and they had clearly shown that their professed faith was a dead faith i'm speaking again of the fakers the people who who are in the church who are faking it 
that they had clearly shown that their, their faith was a dead faith because their works were useless and didn't live up to the standard of Abraham or even Rahab, a common prostitute. Now, I do want to reiterate that in this section, he will also encourage true believers who have been struggling with great trials and difficulties. Clearly, James understood their plight. He wanted them to know that God had not forgotten them. They were the first fruits of the church, and God had not forsaken them. This brings to mind the struggles that you might be going through, the difficulties that you might be going through. God has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten you. He is using your difficulties and trials for His glory and for your good. Listen to this quote by Don Green. I actually posted the entire quote on Facebook. Don Green is a pastor. He, he has planted a church at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. It's not part of the museum, but it actually meets at the museum. He's the pastor of that church, uh, great pastor, puts out really, really, really neat stuff. Listen to what he says about trials. He says, ultimately, our Christian trials are designed to sanctify us. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. That's Hebrews 12.10. They are not random difficulties. They are divine appointments with divine purpose. Prolonged trials sanctify us by stripping us of our pride, self-sufficiency, and attachment to this world. It humbles us to face trials that we cannot control. Trials press home our helplessness. Prolonged trials rob this world of its earlier appeal and make it seem like less like home. We don't realize how deeply the, these, those fleshly remnants of pride, self-sufficiency, and worldly attachment grip us. But the Lord does. And He measures the depth of the pain and the length of the trial to us in perfect proportion to what is necessary to break their prevailing power in our hearts. In other words, he's not being vindictive, unkind, or unfaithful. He hasn't forgotten you. He is the perfect physician of our souls. He knows the disease and he knows the cure. And he applies it with unfailing accuracy. Here in James chapter 4, these people are going through great difficulties. James understood the plight of these Christians. and, And it may have seemed like it was lasting forever for them. But James wanted them to know that God knew and God understands. And James understood that these people were suffering at the hands of unbelievers and were not receiving help from the so-called brethren. And shockingly, they had suffered to the point of death as a result of this neglect. That's what we see in James 2.16. And we also see that in James 5. James then ask this question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He, he wants to double down on what's ailing this group of believers. He asks about the unrest, and he wants them to think it through. He wants them to think about the source of these quarrels and conflicts, and he says, and, and, and he wants them to understand what they are. These quarrels he's referring to uh, could be wars or battles. In this context, it seems to be a state of hostility that exists between James's readers. Uh, conflicts also has the idea of, of battles and strife. Clearly, these people are, are, are in the midst of great battles inside, in, inside the confines of the church. And with this, a good case could be made for actual violence occurring. 
This probably seems extreme to us, right? But we must remember the depravity of man and realize that we are not as far removed from actual violence as we might think. Having said that, I believe that James gives us some clues of what's happening, some of which we've already looked at. But in chapter 2, he warns them against showing partiality to the rich. In that section, he reminds them that the rich, probably rich landowners, are the ones who were oppressing them and violently dragging them into court and blaspheming the name of Jesus. Later in that same chapter, he, he warns them, as we've talked about, about possessing a dead faith which doesn't save. And in doing so, he speaks of the brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food. And these were sent away with a prayer by those in the church who had means to help but were unwilling to do so. They were unwilling probably because they didn't want to lose their standing. But in James 5, listen to what James says. He says this to the rich, these rich landowners. He says, James 5, 4, listen. He says, Behold, the, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which, is, and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived, James 5, 5, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of want and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James 5, 6. Now, I want you to listen to this, because you may be sitting here thinking, now, now, Pastor, you may be overstating this. You may be overstating what's happening here. But listen to James 5, 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, it, was, it would seem, then, that James is addressing three different people, groups of people here associated with the church. As I, as I said, I think he's rebuking the rich landowners who are oppressing the brethren. It would seem that these people have attached themselves to the church by giving jobs, if you will, by giving jobs to hardworking Christians. And these Christians were dependent upon these jobs for their own livelihood. But these rich landowners must have feigned friendship for means of personal gain. And as such, they may even see Christians as a source of free labor and weren't paying them what they needed to survive. James repeatedly calls these people out for their horrific actions. Secondly, so the second group of people I see here are the so-called believers who have been able to avoid persecution probably by befriending and showing partiality toward these rich landowners. James rebukes them and tells them that they have have a false faith that will not save them. And he begs them to repent and turn from this. But they are unwilling to give up their comfort for the sake of a love for Christ and the brethren. Do you get that? They are showing partiality to the rich and they're unwilling to give it up. They're unwilling to give up this this partiality because of the comfort that they think is going to bring to them. And then the third group of people I see here is the downtrodden believer who has given up everything to follow Jesus, the Messiah. You see, James seeks to comfort these oppressed believers. I read James uh, 5, 6 earlier, but I want you to listen to James 5, 7. That's what he says. And I think he's saying this to these poor unbelievers. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. 
He's reminding them that Christ is going to come back. That, that ties back to James chapter 1, verse 12, where he says that those who persevere will receive uh, the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. So he's reminding them that Christ is going to return. Then he says this, The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets, uh, till it gets uh, the early and late rains. You too be patient and strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. He wants them to be patient, knowing that, that God is going to come, or Christ is going to come, that is. And, but then James, in ja- back in, in chapter 4, verse 2, he, he answers his own question. With a, he answers his own question with a question. He, he says, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He does this to deeply probe their hearts. He wants them to, to think this through. But he, he clearly believes the source of their problem is their, their pursuit of pleasure. These pleasures being uh, this, uh, the pleasures, delights, enjoyments, pleasantness. Uh, members could be defined as members of the body of Christ, but I think in this context he's speaking of the parts of the human body. He's referring to pleasures then that, that exist in the flesh, fleshly pleasures. Paul uses this same terminology in Romans 6 and in other places. In other words, there are those associated with the the church who are experiencing the pleasures of the flesh. And James says that this is the source of their conflict. They want to continue living their lives in the same way and are willing to do what it takes to, to make that happen. And according to James, they're even willing to being complicit to murder. That should, that should shock our sensibilities. That these people who are in the church, these so-called believers, are willing to commit murder to keep their pleasures. James had already accused them of this. In James 2.11, he says, in, I'm sorry, James 2.10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Then he says this, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said this, Do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit murder, or adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is saying here, You can, you can walk, uh, you can avoid adultery, but if you are complicit in, in your brethren dying, you have committed murder. Now, I'd, I want to reiterate to make sure we understand that I don't believe that he, he is saying that true believers are committing the act of murder. I'm talking about these fakers, these people with a dead faith. And I believe that's what James is referring to. I believe that some associated with the church have caused the suffering and even the deaths of some of the brethren. And I believe that that some of those in the church were showing partiality toward these rich unbelievers who were doing this. Therefore, they are complicit in murder because they were unwilling to stand up and help their suffering brethren. This should be, it is, a shocking picture of life in the early church. 
But this shouldn't surprise us because the, the church was born in violence, right? It shouldn't surprise us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 8, this is 1 Corinthians 2.8, the wisdom, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they understood, if they understood it, they would not have done what? Crucified the Lord of glory. You see, you see, worldly wisdom drives men, violent men, to commit violence. Violent men then put Jesus on the cross and crucified our Lord of, the Lord of glory because they followed worldly wisdom, wisdom of this age, not the wisdom of God. This should shock your sensibilities. It does mine. So think about that. And, and is it not what we're seeing in this world, Right? Are we not seeing violence being uh, uh, justified because of, because of what the world is saying? We're seeing violence be justified because the world thinks it's right. Majority rules, right? Majority rules. As persecution rises, beloved we will be faced with some very difficult choices. Some of us will choose to suffer for Christ's sake. Some of us here will choose to suffer for Christ's sake if that comes, but others will choose their pleasures wanting to have it both ways. And that's what's going on here. I want to draw that to what we see today in this world is that, that what's happening is, is that there are people who are, are faced with a choice. The choice is, is either I suffer for Christ or I have my pleasures and, and some people want to have it both ways. And that's what causes the conflict. You know, I was talking to a gentleman earlier this week about people coming in and, and shooting in a crowd. And he said that he went through some training on that. And one of, one of the things about training was preparing yourself, walking through the steps. And we, we talked about uh, if you're a stewardess or a, or a pilot on an airplane, knowing exactly the steps that you take in an emergency. And you do that by, by practicing. You do that by, by doing it over and over and over and over again. Beloved, you need to prepare yourself now before the persecution comes. Ask God to reveal your heart. Ask God to show you where, you're, where you truly stand. Are you willing to follow Him no matter where He leads? Or do you love your pleasures too much? If you're unwilling to limit your own pleasures now and sacrificially help those in need, or you're unwilling to sacrifice, sacrificially give to the cause of Christ now because you want your own comfort and pleasures, then what makes you think that you will start when persecution comes? Get it? If you've conditioned yourself now to, to love your pleasures, what makes you think you're going to give them up when persecution comes? 
What makes you think when your boss walks in and says, you can't, you have to denounce Christ, you can't, you, you can't say anything against homosexuality or whatever it is, and, and, you, and he says, you can't do those things and keep your job. What are you going to do? Are you ready for it? I'm not saying you need to live your life as an ascetic, but I am saying that you need to assess your life. Assess what is important to you. Ask yourself, what am I willing to give up? There were some of James's readers. This is shocking, and it should shock us. There were some of James's readers who were willing to allow the brethren to suffer and die because they were unwilling to give up their pleasures, and that was what was called as causing great conflict in the church. That's the first source of conflict. This deadly lust for pleasure. Now let us, let us look at the second one, bitter jealousy. James says in chapter two, chapter 4, verse 2, You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says they, they are envious. Uh, this word is usually translated lust. It's literally the word lust. They lust. It means they have a strong desire for something. <coughs> In James chapter 1, he said, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. But when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This lust then is, is defined as a strong inner desire for something. Now, it doesn't have to be an inner desire for sin. It could be a desire for something good. Christ Himself had a strong desire to eat the Passover with His disciples before He died. That's Luke twenty-two fifteen. But James here is referencing a strong desire for sin. One of the biggest lies, brethren, of our culture is that this desire for sin is not in and of itself sinful. It is true that temptation is outside of us. James says that. It is true. I can be tempted by something and deny that temptation and not commit sin. Do you get that? So I can be tempted by something and I can deny that temptation and turn from it and I'm not in sin. But if that sinful desire is not combated and repented of, then I am in sin. Our culture has adopted a defense that people are made in a certain way, therefore they're not responsible for these desires. They claim that they are born with these proclivities or inclinations such as same-sex attraction. Therefore, we're just giving in to our true selves when we give in to these, these proclivities, these inclinations. Beloved, this is a lie from the pit of hell. Just this past week. I, this is how crazy it's gotten. This is, I, now, I admit this is outlying stuff, but what's outlying is it going to become mainstream pretty quickly. Just this past week, there were a couple of videos circulating in which two ladies were saying that we need to be more accepting of pedophiles. You know what a pedophile is, right? I'm not going to just tell you what it is, but you can figure it out if you don't already know. We should be more accepting of pedophiles because they were born that way and can't help their desires. Now, let me be fair. They, they were still against the actual act of pedophilia. 
But can our culture be that far away from accepting that as normal behavior? Can it? Because that's where we're, that's where we're headed as a culture. That's, the, that's an example of the spiral of depravity. You let these things happen and you say that there are, it's our inclination and therefore it's okay. What happens? It's the next thing that becomes okay. Even in the church, beloved. Even in the church, we're seeing people claim that same-sex attraction is not sinful. Some people are just inclined to it. And it's, it's closer than you might think. You probably have read articles on the internet by people who, who think this. That's not what God says in His Word. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, not to be crude, but we... God says you can't cover your neighbor's wife, but we can what? Covet our neighbor? How ludicrous is that? Jesus said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, this is Matthew 5, 27, 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So clearly lust for another person that is not your wife or husband in a biblical marriage between a man and a woman is the same as committing adultery and is sinful whether that person is of the opposite sex or not. Therefore, according to Jesus, desire for sin is sin if it's not repented of. If we desire something that we can't have and we don't turn from that, if we don't battle and, and, and repent of it, it's sin. In James 4, then we need to understand what these people were lusting after, what they were envious of. And I believe that there were those in the church who saw uh, these rich people living in their pleasures and they wanted a piece of the action. James says of these rich people, we've already read it, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, I believe that James is warning against lusting after these riches and pleasure. In other words, being jealous of what others have, especially when they, have, they live lives of wanton pleasure. They were lusting after these riches showing partiality toward the rich, causing the suffering and death of, of the brethren, yet they could not obtain those riches. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He says, you, you are envious, you lust after these things, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These pleasures were at their fingertips, they, but they were just outside of their grasp. They were like the drug addict who must have the next fix. They were willing to do anything for it. And again, this is shocking. This is shocking. Washington Irving says, this, Irving says this, Jealous people poison their own banquet and then eat it. Jealous people poison their own banquet and then eat it. Said another way, these people were poisoning the church, causing great suffering, but they were, weren't receiving the object of their desires. 
they were only reaping the poison and the bitterness. I hope you're saying to yourself, this shouldn't characterize the church. This shouldn't be what the church is. Why do you think he said in in chapter 3, verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We need to be seeking after a godly wisdom in his word. You can't make sense of this outside of understanding that unbelievers masquerade as believers in the church. They quietly feed their own pleasures among the flock. They fly under the radar, but in certain times they become evident. They desire their own pleasures, and when they can't have it, they start fights and quarrels and conflicts among the brethren. And again, you might be saying to yourself, what's this have to do with, my, with me? Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? I urge you to examine yourselves. Ask yourselves, am I, am I walking in the darkness and examine to know and seek after the Lord. Receive His Word, His implanted Word that is able to save your souls. John says, if we, have fellowship, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. It goes on in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is saying we need to confess. Keeping a short account with God. And you might be saying, I, I struggle with these sins. I can struggle with desiring pleasures and witness, uh, riches. Beloved, confess it now. Confess it now. Turn from it while you can. Don't toy with these things. Run to Christ who has paid for your sins if you trust Him. We've seen the first two sources of conflict which make the church look like the world. Let's take a look at the third. The third and fourth go pretty quickly. Boastful pride. Boastful pride. James says you do not have because you do not ask. Now this phrase is a little hard to understand. We must understand then what it is that they do not have. And I think we need to look at the overall context again to understand what he's saying. It seems that they have a desire then to be teachers and to gain recognition in the community as leaders. That's James chapter 3 verse 1. He says, he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. They don't have the right wisdom for this. That's the issue. They don't have the right wisdom. They have wisdom from below, but they don't have wisdom from above. Therefore, their desire for leadership is nothing more than a worldly craving for power and the pleasures that come with it. They are prideful because they are trying to boost themselves through worldly wisdom, which is is nothing more than what? The elevation of self. Human pride. They don't think they need God, and they look down upon true godly wisdom. They ask, what, what God would cause suffering in my life? Why, 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 my God would bring pleasure to my life. My God is blessing me. Your best life now, right? 
I think as John MacArthur said, if you're having your best life now, you're going to hell. They ask what God would send his own son to suffer on a cross and die for humanity. Certainly not the God of my own making, right? We, re- we, we sang that song at, earlier, the worship song by Bob Coughlin. What wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect Lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your Son rejoice around your throne. You see, these people were sinfully prideful. They craved power and pleasure, and they were trusting in worldly wisdom to get it. James says they don't have, they don't have respect and leadership. They're not teachers because they're not asking for the right things. He'd already said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Wisdom from above. See, they were, they were going after wisdom from below. And they were not asking in faith. Therefore, they were double-minded. It's James's point, James chapter 1. They were double-minded. Prideful people are double-minded people. They, were, they pridefully justified their own actions up to and including being complicit to violence against the brethren. We've seen the first three sources of conflict in the church that make the church look like the world. Let's look at the fourth one. Distorted desires. Verse 3. You ask, you ask and you receive. Do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This last point really sums up the first three points and will launch us into the rest of the passage. They ask and do not receive because they, they ask with wrong motives. Again, they're looking for power and influence and they desire pleasure. And these desires are, are not of God. They are distorted. Yet they've twisted them. Now get this. These are distorted desires, yet they have twisted them to make them seem godly. They desire to be teachers. They want to, they want to lead the flock, but they want this for what? Their own pleasure. They want this for their own comfort. And they are willing to sin to get what they want. I don't often quote, I don't think I've ever quoted Sigmund Freud, but I'm going to here. Hopefully it's in the, you'll know it's not in a good way. This is what Sigmund Freud said, though. The goal towards which the pleasure principle impels us of becoming happy, happy is not attainable. Yet we may not, nay, cannot give up the efforts to come nearer to realization of it by some means or other. Did you get that? Did you get that? This is what Sigmund Freud's saying. The pursuit of happiness is unattainable. But we, but we cannot give up the efforts to come nearer to the realization of it by any means necessary, is what he's saying. In other words, worldly, the worldly and fleshly man 
cannot give up pursuing his own pleasure. See the danger there? See the danger of that when that happens in the church? When you have, James says in James 5, the righteous man does what? He does not... Resist you. That's what it says. James 5, 4. 5, 5. You have lived... I'm sorry, 5, 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not what? He doesn't resist you. So it's incredibly dangerous in the church when we have fleshly, worldly people doing what they want to do. Going after their own desires. They're willing to stop at nothing to have their pleasure. And as such, these people present a clear and present danger to the church. They are unwilling, they're willing to do nothing short of treachery. And it shows that their faith isn't real. Charles Spurgeon says this, If you profess to be a Christian, yet find full satisfaction in worldly pleasures and pursuits, your profession is false. Yet in God's sovereignty, what they mean for evil, he uses for good, right? James taught the brethren that in the wisdom of God, their suffering is not in vain. Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or, nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Beloved, if you love Christ, you will suffer for him. My hope is that as this world changes and goes forward, that, that it will hold off, right? That righteousness will prevail. But I, I can't be assured of that. Matter of fact, if I read the scriptures right, it's coming. Well, I've said it a few times. But this passage should assault us. Clearly, great violence existed from the very beginning. But this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Conflicts exist because sinners exist in the church, and conflicts exist because unbelievers are associated with the church. And Christian, if you are honest with yourself, you realize conflicts exist in your own heart. There will be conflict until the Lord calls you home. David Platt says this, the key is realizing and believing that this world is not your home. If you and I ever hope to free our lives from worldly desires, worldly thinking, worldly pleasures, worldly dreams, worldly ideas, worldly values, worldly ambitions, and, a world, and worldly acclaim, then we must focus our lives on, on another world. We must focus our lives on God's kingdom. And we should expect opposition, especially if we're doing the Lord's work. 
Satan will not allow us to move forward unopposed. Charles Spurgeon said, We are foolish to expect to serve God without opposition. The more zealous we are, the more sure we are to be assailed. Glory be to God, we know the end of the war. The great dragon shall be cast out and forever destroyed, while Jesus and they who are with him shall receive the crown. Let us sharpen our swords tonight and pray the Holy Spirit to nerve our arms for the conflict. Never battle so important, never crown so glorious. Every man to his post, ye warriors of the cross, and may the Lord tread Satan under your feet shortly. If you are struggling with one or more of these things, of these conflicts, sources of conflict, join the crowd. If we're honest, we all struggle to one degree or another. I beg you to lay it at the foot of the cross. If you're a believer, you already know what forgiveness looks like. You have been forgiven. You have been declared not guilty. Your sins are nailed to the cross. You are forgiven. Yet as Paul states, we are not to sin that grace would abound. Apostle John, as we said earlier, says confess your sins to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And if you don't know Him, I beg you, turn to Him. Repent of your sins. Repent and follow Jesus. You are now a slave of your sin. You know what Jesus says though? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your burden of sin that you on you now is heavy. It's weighing you down if you don't know Him. Turn to Him. You are heavy laden. You who are heavy laden, turn to Him. And be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. I do pray, Lord, that you would use this sermon to your glory. I pray that our church would recognize the sources of conflict among us, that we, if we look we can see those sources of conflict even in our small body. Father, I pray that we would recognize them for what they are as sin and turn from them as individuals and as a church. We thank you for, your, for instructing us in your word so that we may walk righteously 